continuing on in the book of 1 Timothy, which actually is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy. That's why it's called 2 Timothy, the second letter to Timothy that we have in the New Testament. And at the time when this letter was written, Paul is in prison in Rome, and he expects to be executed at some point in the near future. Timothy, meanwhile, is in the city of Ephesus. Paul has left him there in the church in Ephesus to deal with false teaching in that church. Not an easy task, but a necessary task. As we saw last week, so we drew out a couple of principles from the end of chapter 2, at the top of our list of what matters most after, of course, glorifying God. Uh, people matter. Truth matters. We started with the truth. Then we talked about people mattering. So confronting false teaching is necessary because the truth and people matter most. The gospel is a thing because God loves the world. So 2 Timothy, the theme of the book is endurance. Paul encourages Timothy to endure when life and ministry get difficult. And this is something we need as well today. We need endurance when life gets difficult, when it gets difficult to serve uh, the Lord, when it gets difficult to, to follow Christ. We need Christian endurance. So we're in chapter 3. We're going to try and cover the whole chapter this morning because I have something to get into when we get to uh, December, uh, December the 10th. I won't be preaching on the 3rd, but the 10th, we're going to start something uh, related to the birth of Jesus. So we're going to, over the next two weeks, get to the end of 2 Timothy. So I really can't do justice to all 17 verses in about the 30 minutes that I have here this morning, but we're going to jump down. We're going to get eventually to some of the other verses, but we're going to jump down at the start to verses 16 and 17. So in verse 16, Paul gives two characteristics of Scripture. First, the English Standard Version says Scripture is breathed out by God. And secondly, Scripture is profitable or useful. So two characteristics of Scripture. It's breathed out by God, and it is profitable. Now, the Greek word translated as breathed out by God by the English Standard Version is theonoustos. It's the only time this Greek word is found in the New Testament Really, it's not found anywhere else outside of the New Testament during this time period when Paul wrote 2 Timothy. So many people believe that Paul actually invented this word. Other English translations, if you have a different Bible, you might see that it speaks of the Bible or Scripture being inspired by God or given by inspiration of God. There was a time, and this was influenced by the Latin, the Latin Vulgate uh, and the King James Version was influenced by that, of course. Uh, translations are influenced by English translations that come before it. But there was a time when inspire or inspired meant to breathe into. Now, when we talk about inspiration today, normally we think of someone being inspired to, to write a song or decor in a home inspired by, you know, a certain era or a certain style of, of uh, uh, decorating 
So when we think of the Bible being inspired by God, it's kind of unclear or vague what that means. Is it just like someone being inspired to write something? Well, obviously, this Greek word means more than that. We use it inspired in a metaphorical way today, not a literal breathing into. And so we might get a little confused when we read inspired by God. So the ESV gives a more literal translation of the Greek. Theonoustos, two parts to that. It's a compound word, God and breathed. And so quite literally, it means breathed out by God, or the NIV says God breathed. Scripture breathed out by God. So this means that Scripture comes from God. That's what we call it, God's Word. What Scripture says, God says. All Scripture has been breathed out by God. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, he quotes Psalm 95. And instead of saying the psalmist says this, he actually says the Holy Spirit says this. And so the writer of Hebrews understands that what Scripture says, God says. So so even though there was a man, a psalmist as we might call him, who wrote Psalm 95, at the same time it is God's Word. So what Scripture says, God says. All Scripture has been breathed out by God. In uh, verse 15, Paul talks about the sacred writings. How from childhood you have, he's speaking to Timothy or writing to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He's probably referring to how he had been uh, taught the scriptures by his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5. The sacred writings refer to the Old Testament scriptures. And and here in verse 16, he talks about all scripture. Now, we can't be sure of this, but it could be that Paul here is including New Testament scripture with Old Testament scripture and saying all scripture, not just the sacred writings, not just the Old Testament scriptures are breathed out by God, but all Scripture. Of course, the New Testament had not been completed by this time, uh, but some of it had, and there is uh, scriptural support for uh, even the New Testament saying that the New Testament has been breathed out by God. We don't have time to get into it, but 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes uh, a statement made in the Gospels referring to it as Scripture, and uh, Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. So all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it's breathed out by God. It is God's Word. What Scripture says, Old Testament and New Testament, God says. Scripture says, God says. It is God's Word. Of course, written by men, but breathed out by God. We can't completely understand that, but what God's word says or what Scripture says, God says. So Scripture, Paul says, it's profitable for for four things. I don't think this is a complete list, but he mentions four things that Scripture is profitable for. First, Scripture is profitable for teaching. Second, Scripture is profitable for reproof. 
Third, it's profitable for correction. And then fourth, Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And then notice verse 17, the purpose of Scripture. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So basically what this means is that the purpose of Scripture is that it will cause us to, to be what God wants us to be, complete. And it will cause us to do what we ought to do, equipped for every good work. Now it says the man of God, and Paul is probably thinking of, and he mentions uh, Moses already, but he's, he's thinking of someone like Moses or the prophets when he talks about the man of God, someone like Timothy, someone who was a minister of the word. But we can apply this, I believe, to, to every person of God. That scripture, it's breathed out by God, it's God's word, it's profitable for these four things, and these four things are able to make us complete, in other words, make us who God wants us to be, and they equip us, the scriptures equip us for every good work. Who we are to be, and what we are to do. Let's just focus on one of these things, though. One of these things that Scripture is profitable for. I want to focus on reproof. Maybe the, the least attractive on the list. Scripture is profitable for reproof. What is reproof? Okay, it involves correction. Correction is mentioned here. Reproof comes first, though. Reproof, if you're reproved by someone, it's the opposite of approval. When someone says, you did a good job, reproof is someone pointing out that you didn't do something quite right, or you said something and you didn't say it in a very kind way, or you shouldn't have said it in that way. It's, it's pointing out something that you've done wrong. So, Scripture points out our sin. It doesn't always approve what we're doing. It doesn't always give us approval. Sometimes it gives us a proof, uh, reproofs. And how many like to be reproved? Not many. We can recognize, though, that it can be good. You know, if we're humble, if we receive reproof, it's, if it's good reproof, if someone has legitimately pointed out something we've, we've done or said wrong, if we accept that, then it can be a good thing. And then that's where correction comes. We correct that, uh, that thing we did wrong or that area of our life that, that needs changing. So we normally don't like reproof, to be reproved hurts. Just It hurts a little bit to be reproved. But it is good for us. So let's connect reproof, which we find in Scripture, with what Paul writes earlier in this chapter. So remembering that when Scripture points out our sin, God is pointing out our sin. Because what Scripture says, God says. So let's go back to the first 
nine verses. Again, we're not going to be able to get into all of these verses in depth, but let's look at the first nine. So Paul writes to Timothy, but understand this. So we had talked about opponents and how he's to be kind and gentle. Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses. But he says, understand this. He says, we need to be realistic. That's not always going to happen. In the last days, there will come times of, of difficulty. I know the NIV says terrible times. The last days. And we often think of the last days as something in the future. But if you read scripture, what it says about the last days, really the last days began with Christ, especially his death, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're living in the last days. Paul and Timothy were in the last days. And so what he says here is not just true of our time or a future time, but it was true of Paul and Timothy's time as well. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, and he lists off all sorts of sins, this is what we call a vice list, for people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So he's probably here at the end thinking of false teachers who were inside the church. He says, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come or arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I should clarify what he's saying here. Because uh, some of you ladies will hear weak women and think maybe Paul is referring to all women as weak. We don't know exactly what was, was happening that led him to write this. But he's talking about certain women in Ephesus. He talks about their past, uh, burdened, uh, a, a past involving uh, sin. And this made them susceptible to what these men were, were teaching. He was... They were leading these women astray. And so it's not talking about all women. It's talking about these women who are more susceptible because of their past. Uh, and I don't know all the details, and we don't know all the details, but uh, they were taking advantage of these, these women. And so and this is one of the reasons why, why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, to deal with situations like this. So... False teaching in the church, people being led astray. Continuing on, verse 9, just as Janus and Jambres, uh, these are the uh, Egyptian magicians. Uh, they don't have names in the book of Exodus, chapter 7. These were names that were added later on. Uh, but uh, Paul knows that people will know these names, and so he uses them here. Uh, those are the ones who tried to copy the miracles of, of Moses and, and Aaron. Basically, what he's saying is they opposed the truth. They opposed Moses, the prophet of God. They opposed the truth of God. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. In verse 5, 
Paul says there are some people who appear to be godly, but they lack the power of God. They, 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 they say things, they sound like Christians, but they lack the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people. Now, you might be thinking, uh, what about what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where he, he, he says that uh, Timothy always needs to be gentle and, and kind to everyone, even to his opponents. Is this a contradiction? Now, avoid might refer to excommunication, which is the removal of a person from the church. Uh, when we invite someone into the membership of our, of our church, we say, this is a believer, and uh, we are going to uh, you know, treat this person like a believer. We believe that they are a saved individual. Uh, but sometimes, unfortunately, it becomes necessary to remove someone from the church, like these false teachers who were teaching uh, error connected with the gospel. So we should always be kind and gentle. Scripture tells us this, not with just the people who are easy to be kind and gentle with. But there comes a time when persistent and unrepentant sin can't remain in the church. Really, it would not be kind to the church if false teaching was allowed to continue and to lead people astray and so on, like, like was happening as Paul, Paul mentions here. And it can be done in as kind of a way as, as possible, as gentle of a way as possible. And of course, uh, we uh, always want restoration. We always want reconciliation. And so sometimes it's necessary to do something to avoid that person or to remove that person, uh, especially if they're teaching false uh, doctrine to remove them from the church. You know, our church has two, two important documents. We have our statement of faith and we have our church covenant. Statement of faith is, is what we believe, what we agree to believe. And uh, the church covenant is, is how we live as, as Christians in our church family. And it's not that, and we tell this to people who join the church, it's not that, you know, we we have this church covenant and we're, we're spying on you. And if we find out you didn't read your Bible one day, we're going to say, you know, one more time and we're going to remove you from the church. We understand we all struggle. And, and this is something that we agree. This is what, how we want to live. We understand that we're not going to be perfect and uh, we're not going to always do these things as we should. But, but this is our, our desire. It's sort of like when there are uh, wedding vows. You, you, you promise to always love uh, that person to put them first. And, but you know that you're not always going to do that, but that's your desire, uh, and, and you shouldn't stray from that desire, but there are times where, where we get off track and, and, and our love is not what it should be, or those moments or those days, uh, maybe even a season, but then we, we come back to, you know, what I, what I promised on that day. So, statement of faith, what we believe, church covenant, how we agree to live, we're not perfect, but it's that, it's that persistent disobedience or that unrepentance. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to do this or that. Uh, I'm not going to believe uh, that. I'm going to believe something totally opposite of what the Bible or the statement of faith based on the Bible uh, says. Then it's, it's in those cases, uh, like what Paul is talking about here, that, that, that those more drastic measures uh, need to be taken. So it's not that we cease to be kind or gentle, but sometimes it is necessary to, as Paul says, avoid such 
people. But again, the hope is always that the person, as Paul says at the end of chapter 2, is that they, they come to repentance, that they come to their sentence, senses, and, and uh, uh, you know, there's, there's restoration. But getting back to reproof, I thought I should point that out because it, 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 some of you might have been thinking about that and thinking, well, that doesn't seem to fit what came earlier. But uh, reproof, Scripture is profitable for reproof. One of the good things it does, even though we might not always seem like it's a good thing, think it's a good thing, but it does point out our sin, and that is a good thing. We need, we need to allow Scripture to reprove us. And there's a long list of sins, vices, and we don't have time to get to them all. I just wanted to focus on three, three that are very similar. Start with the same word. In verse 2, there's lovers of self and lovers of money. And verse 5, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And when we look at that list and we think about the last days, we might be tempted just to just think about what's out there, what's out there in the world. And think about all the sins that are out there and how terrible things are. But I think we should first think about in here. Scripture reproves sin inside the church and inside our own hearts. So we shouldn't go first to what's out there. We should go first to, to what's in here and what's in here. Uh, is there love of self, love of money, love of pleasure rather than love of God? Now, Augustine, many years ago, said the essence of sin is disordered love. Disordered love. So when we sin, our, our affections or our desires, our love, they're, they're, they're out of order. The things we care about, they're not in their proper order. You might think when you hear those words out of order, you might think of a, a vending machine. You go to, for your favorite chocolate bar or bottle of pop and you see the dreaded uh, out of order sign. What does that mean? means it's, it's not working. The parts are not in order, I guess, is the, where that term came from. But uh, out of order, not working properly. You might say it's, it's broken. And, and, and that's sort of how we are when, when our love is, is disordered or out of order. We're not working properly. We're, in a sense, broken. Uh, we're not operating or living as God intends for us to live. We have our love out of order, our affections or our desires, those things we care about. If they're not in their proper order or place, then that's where sin comes in. So he said, Augustine said, the essence of sin is disordered love. He said that we don't love the wrong things, we love the right things in the wrong order. You might quibble with that statement a little bit, but I think it's, it's basically true. We, we love the right things. You know, in a sense, it's not wrong to love yourself, to have a healthy self-esteem, but it is wrong when we love ourselves so much that we are then selfish. Uh, money is good. We need to appreciate money, but we need to put it in its proper place. Pleasure, God gave us 
pleasures. He wants us to enjoy life. He gave us many good things, but those things can't come before God. So it's not that we love the wrong things. We love the right things, but in the wrong order. It's clear in verse 5, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the list begins with lovers of self, the love of self, selfishness, putting myself first. And really, I believe that's the gateway to all sin, when we put ourselves first. And then it becomes, well, what do I want rather than what God wants? It's really the opposite of what we see in the gospel. We read in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus emptied himself. He became a servant. He was willing to die on a cross for our sins. And so love of self is really the opposite of what we see in Scripture. Not that you shouldn't care about yourself, but we're not to be selfish. And so when we're selfish, when we think about only ourselves, when we put ourselves first, then that leads to all sorts of other sins. It's what I want to do rather than what God wants to do. What is the essence of obedience? The essence of disobedience or sin is, is disordered love. What is the essence of obedience? Well, we see this several times in Scripture. Just turn to one passage that speaks to this. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 40. Pretty sure I have the wrong passage here. I could quote it if I want to. If I need to, I should say. Um, That wasn't the right passage, but you might have guessed what the one is. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? I won't be able to quote it verbatim, perhaps, but he said, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That is the greatest commandment. And then there was a second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So he said, on these two commandments, really hang all of the law and the prophets, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. So you could boil it all down, sum it all up with those two commands. That's what we are to do. That's the essence of obedience. That's the essence of of following God's word. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's love in its proper order. Loving God and loving others. So thinking about reproof, how scripture might reproof us. Probably no one here is going to disagree that, that God should be on the top of the list. That, you know, the order of things is love God at the top. He's at the top. Love him with all your heart. And, you know, when we think of others, you know, probably no one would say, disagree, well, love your, love your family. You know, love, love your spouse, love your children, love your parents. Uh, your brother, sister, whatever. You know, Scripture says we're to care for these people. Uh, there are responsibilities. 
One of the reasons why we need money. And so no one's going to probably disagree that, you know, God and, you know, our family members, uh, and we're also to love our neighbor as herself. The people that come to mind next is our church family. And maybe this is where we need a little reproof. Uh, we might think of church fam, uh, our family here, our biological, our, our uh, physical family, our family, as we would refer to it, uh, those children, brothers, sisters, parents, uh, here. And we might think of our church family as like all the way down here. But I don't think that's how Scripture has it. It's not that, you know, our church family comes way below. Uh, what we see in Scripture is that we have many responsibilities. You know, we talked about the church covenant. Uh, a responsibility to, to serve and to help and to care for one another. And uh, it's, it's up to us as, as members of our church family, to examine our own self. And I'm not going to say what you should do and what you shouldn't do, or that every time the church doors are open, that, that you should be here, that you should be to every single event. But we think about lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do we, do we love pleasure more than we love our church family? You know, does pleasure consistently come before our church family? You know, what Scripture says, God says. When, when Scripture reproves us, God is reproving us, and he places a very high priority in our lives to our church family, that we're to care about one another, we're to get to know one another, we're to pray for one another, we're to worship with one another. You know, do we have things in their proper order? The essence of sin is disordered Love. Do we have our church family in its proper order in our lives? Or is it way down on the list and if there's things I want to do, not that we, and again, I'm not going to tell you what you should do or what you shouldn't do, and I'd be hypocritical if I said, oh, I never do something fun rather than do something at the church or help out in some way. So I'm not going to be hypocritical and, and tell you to do this or that. But as I was thinking about this list and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and disordered love, lovers of self, lovers of money, uh, you know, where does our church family fit into this list of the order of our, our love or our affections? Are you loving the right things in the right order? Of course, God wants us to enjoy the things that he's given to us, and we all have our, uh, and I have many interests, I like to watch sports. I have hobbies. Too many, really. Uh, probably waste too much time on those things. But uh, we have lots to enjoy. Many of us have all sorts of interests and things we like to do. But at the same time, we need to have things in their, their right order. And, and uh, God said, it comes down to loving him first and loving others. And so, and so do we have things in their proper order? order. And, and that's not just me uh, talking to you. That's all of us needing to examine our own, our own uh, lives, our own hearts, and to see if, if, this, if Scripture reproves us in this way, or maybe there's something else in this passage that Scripture is pointing out 
things we need to change. And uh, if Scripture is doing that, then again, God is, is doing that. So let's allow Scripture to do its work. Uh, let's allow Scripture to reprove us. We don't like it, but in the end, it is good for us. So, getting our loves in the right order. Are we loving the right things in the right order?